On February 24, 2022, Russia began a renewed invasion of Ukraine, the first big, earnest move in a larger, slow-motion invasion that began in 2014 when Russia sent weapons and unmarked soldiers to back Russia-aligned paramilitary groups in Ukraine's Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts in the country's eastern Donbass region, two groups Russia later, in 2022, recognized as independent breakaway states that were firmly entrenched in their ideological orbit. But parallel to that initial breaking away, Russia also annexed Crimea, a very strategically significant chunk of Ukraine, which contains, among other things, vital naval infrastructure that the Russian government was long-term renting from the Ukrainian government up till that point. The instigating factor for this conflict was another event that happened in early 2014 the ouster of then-Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych as part of what became known as the Revolution of Dignity, or Maiden Revolution. Basically, protesters in Kyiv had been clashing with government forces for months, beginning in November of 2013, following Yanukovych's decision to not sign a free trade and political association agreement with the European Union. This wasn't entirely a surprise, as Yanukovych was in Moscow's pocket, and probably payroll as well, and was corrupt as hell, essentially, keeping Ukraine aligned with Russia on pretty much everything, and keeping local oligarchs in charge as part of that overall corruption. But this decision turned Ukraine away from the rest of Europe in a hard and significant fashion, and that did not sit well with many of the country's citizens, who were thus limited in their interactions with the rest of the continent, which put them deeper and more unavoidably in Russia's sphere of influence, which Russia was busily reasserting at the time in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse and the capture of the Russian state by the oligarchs who grabbed all the country's resources following that collapse. So we've got Russia trying to rebuild its empire slowly, and mostly through political and misinformation and bribery and assassination and economic means. We've got Ukrainian citizens saying, no, that is not what we want, we don't want to be a part of that, and successfully protesting and clashing with government forces. Those protests and clashes culminating with the overthrow of that Russia-aligned government. And then Russia, seeing their puppet in Ukraine overthrown, rushes in to grab infrastructure they rely upon to operate militarily and economically in the Black Sea, which is what Crimea allowed them to do because of that naval infrastructure. In those breakaway provinces, Russia supported, served as both an additional pathway from mainland Russia to Crimea, but also as a buffer between Russia and a potential near-future enemy, which is something Russia historically has generally been pretty keen to do, since they've got just massive amounts of shared borders, and guarding all those borders is not really a feasible option. So they've usually tried to put another country that they more or less control between themselves and any would-be enemy forces. All of that grabbing and supporting of paramilitaries and general manipulation and messing with the global system 
of who owns what and how the world responds to bad behavior led to a sort of new confidence within the Russian government, because they essentially got away with it. Sure, there were some strong words from the U.S. and the West. A bunch of governments and militaries said essentially, hey, don't you keep doing that or we might have to do something about it. But the world was generally uninterested in creating a huge conflict with a nuclear power like Russia. And Ukraine wasn't really on anyone's mental map of important nations. It wasn't a wealthy country, it was not influential, and it had generally been run by Russian puppets for a while now. So it was very corrupt, and the idea that it was a truly European nation to begin with was kind of in question at that point as well. Thus, the Russian government was able to lightly conceal their invasion, grab a significant chunk of another country's territory, and get away scot-free. And that, plus the light sanctions that were applied to them in the aftermath of that grab, gave them both additional confidence in their ability to do this sort of thing again, and a sense of what to expect if and when they decided to do so. They reasoned they would probably see somewhat bigger sanctions if they did it again, or more significant sanctions. So they spent a handful of years recalibrating their economy to account for that potentiality, so the damage wouldn't be as great. And they figured they could expect, when the time came, the West and other potentially oppositional forces to break away, to be focused on other things, to be generally disinterested in sparking anything big, and to be a loose collection of powers that doesn't want to start a new world war, and which would therefore probably hurl even more strong words and maybe some minor economic punishments at Russia, but otherwise everyone who could stop them would mostly just allow Russia to do what it wants across this region that, after all, was formerly part of the Soviet Union. What I'd like to talk about today is the invasion of Ukraine one year in, and what we might expect next. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The build-up to the more recent invasion of Ukraine, the one that happened a year ago, not the slow-motion one that began in 2014, was similar in some ways to earlier modern Russian military moves in that it was obscured by misinformation, though it was still fairly overt, all things considered. Rather than sending thousands of troops with their identifying information removed from their uniforms, the mass of them towing dozens of artillery pieces and other such hardware, this time they built up hundreds of thousands of troops and their accompanying weapons along their border with Ukraine, telling the world the whole time that they're just conducting military exercises and that anyone claiming otherwise is tarnishing their good name and becoming alarmist over nothing. They had the right to do whatever they wanted within their borders, so the Russian government said, and if Ukraine was getting worried about that, well, that's their problem. Commentators and analysts around the world shouted that this was nothing to worry about. It was just more saber-rattling by a belligerent, attention-craving autocrat, and that Putin would be crazy to invade wholesale a neighboring sovereign nation because that could spiral into World War III, and surely they would not want that, would do what they could to avoid it like any sane nation. So maybe we could expect more subtle invasiveness like back in 2014, but all those troops, all those tanks, 
They were massing at their borders. Surely not. Those doubts were put to rest on the morning of February 24th, though, when Putin announced a, quote, special military operation, end quote, a euphemism he stuck with for much of the first year of the invasion, and said that Russian forces were stepping in to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, basically implying that the nation was being overrun by Nazis and being led by Nazis, and they would kick the Nazis out, returning real Ukrainians, which in their mind meant another Russian puppet government, to power. The Ukrainians fought back against these incursions, and although the world, again, including all these well-informed analysts and experts, almost unanimously expected a day or two of invading, and then just mopping up operations, everyone figured the Ukrainians would be mowed down easily by this huge show of Russian force, that's not what happened. The Ukrainians, shockingly, held them back, and then, even more shockingly, kept holding them back. The multi-pronged assault by Russian forces resulted in gobs of Russian deaths, a whole lot of tanks and other weaponry lost, and victory after victory for Ukraine, even as large swaths of their country, including around their capital city, Kyiv, were pounded into rubble, with a lot of deaths amongst both their soldiers and their non-combat citizenry. The story from there will be at least a bit familiar to you, as we've been living through a year of a land war in Europe, with all the frenzied reporting and updates inherent in such an important and historical event. Taking a step back to look at some of the numbers so far, most of which are imperfect for all sorts of reasons due to normal fog of war variables, and because in many cases we just can't know, for instance, how many people were killed in every building that has collapsed after an artillery barrage, and to what degree both governments and outside bodies are slanting the numbers. But what we do seem to know is this. About 18% of Ukraine is controlled by Russian forces as of late last week, which is down from 23% late last March. Several waves of Ukrainian counteroffensives have been very effective at taking back territory, and the current war of mostly attrition, which is slower and deadlier, and tends to be more of a grind, and result in fewer large victories for either side, is holding things at around that level as of the day I'm recording this. There have been something like 5,000 missile strikes, 3,500 airstrikes, and around 1,000 drone strikes into Ukrainian territory by Russian forces confirmed over the past year, according to a senior Ukrainian official. More than 8,000 Ukrainian civilians have been confirmed as killed through February 15, 2023, by Russian forces, and nearly half that number, 3,382, were confirmed killed by the United Nations Rights Office in March of 2022 alone, the first full month of the invasion. And substantially more than that, about 13,300 Ukrainian civilians have been confirmed injured at a recordable level, so hospitalization-scale injuries, over the past year. Even trickier is recording Russian figures, because the numbers they release publicly are considered to be, and this is being generous, highly suspect. Official Russian government counts say they've lost not quite 6,000 soldiers in the invasion so far, that tally beginning in February 2022 and ending in September of the same year. International estimates vary greatly, but are universally a lot 
higher than that, often by at least an order of magnitude. The British Ministry of Defense, for instance, has estimated that somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000 Russian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine so far, while other estimates of Russian soldiers seriously wounded, to the point where they can no longer fight, or killed, have been closer to 200,000. Those numbers, I should note, are so much higher on the Russian side, because most of their soldiers were not terribly well-trained, if they were trained at all. Most were ill-equipped with old guns and ammo, expired rations, and some weren't even issued guns before they were sent to the front lines. And that's in addition to the usual advantages enjoyed by those defending their own turf against outsiders. Many of these Russian deaths would seem to be the consequence of soldiers sent into battle without being told they were part of an invading force. Many were the result of what seems to be just bad planning by their leaders, and many of these soldiers were basically used as cannon fodder. They were sent en masse into the fray to basically block bullets that would otherwise hit the more important further back soldiers that would eventually claim the territory, and the even further back artillery pieces. This has been a fairly standard strategy by Russian forces for hundreds of years, by the way, stretching all the way back beyond the Soviet Union, which used this approach to great success to defeat the Nazis, the actual ones, the Germans during World War II, though at great cost in terms of lives, all the way back to the region's historical fighting against mostly European nations during its imperialist era. So while staggering, in some ways, these numbers, if they're even close to accurate, are not a total shock, as this is kind of how Russia's military planning goes. They don't typically have the best equipped military or the best economy to back up their military, but historically they have typically had a whole lot of people to throw at any military problem, and they have tended to near sociopathically be willing to do so, sacrificing huge quantities of human lives to achieve their goals. On the Ukrainian side, their total troop losses, as opposed to their civilian losses, a delineation that is tricky to make at times, as many civilians have taken up arms to defend their homes against Russian invaders, the Ukrainian government estimates they've lost about 9,000 troops as of August of 2022. That number has no doubt increased substantially since then, but that's the most recent official government tally, though international bodies have estimated that more than 100,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed or grievously wounded to the point where they can no longer fight. About 8.1 million Ukrainian refugees have fled the country to other nations, with about 5.2 million of them headed toward other European and Central Asian countries, while about 2.9 million have fled into nearby parts of Russia. Around 5.4 million Ukrainians are considered to be internally displaced, meaning they've been forced from their homes and have fled violence or potential violence, but are still inside Ukraine at the moment, homeless but still living within their country. So far, since the beginning of the invasion, about 5.6 million Ukrainians that fled have returned to Ukraine, to their homes, to repair the damage and or to fight on behalf of their country. So that's about 13.5 million Ukrainians that are in some state of homelessness, and it's estimated that around 17.6 million Ukrainians are in need of humanitarian aid, including food, health services, and even basics like shelter and heat and clean water. Worth noting here, too, is that international bodies have tabulated just shy of 72,000 potential war crimes 
committed by Russians in this conflict, including things like killings, kidnappings, sexual assaults, and the indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets, all of which are not allowed according to international standards, and all of which suggests that in addition to those other types of aid, food and water and shelter and such, it's likely a whole lot of people in Ukraine will be in need of mental health and similar services sometime soon. Now, as I mentioned, huge swaths of Ukraine have been bombed into rubble, and it's currently estimated by the Kyiv School of Economics that about $138 billion worth of damage has been caused to Ukraine's infrastructure by Russian forces so far. The International Monetary Fund has said that about 33% of Ukraine's GDP in 2022 will likely just have disappeared, a full third of the country's total output which lines up with the World Trade Organization's estimate that there will have been an approximately 30% decline in the value of Ukrainian exports over the same period. Russia hasn't come away unscathed in this, as it's expected, by the IMF, that their GDP will decline by around 2.2% in 2022, though the value of their exports ballooned by around 16%, in large part due to the increase in fuel, fertilizer, and cereal prices caused by their invasion. This is thought to be a temporary bump, a short-term benefit of those inflated prices, but it's also assumed this increase conceals a holistic decrease in their overall export levels, mostly because of international pushback in the form of sanctions against the Russian government and its associated economic entities. Speaking of sanctions, alongside broad condemnation of the invasion from the international community, Putin's assumption, based on that previous sequence of invasion and invasion-adjacent moves in 2014, didn't prove accurate this time, as the Western world, which until this point was squabbling over a lot of details ranging from NATO-related investments to the deployment of renewable energy infrastructure, seemed to unify in a way that hasn't been seen since the Cold War as a result of this invasion. The EU and US in particular, alongside other NATO members, have been fairly stern in their application of sanctions against Russia, starting out pretty small, but increasing their scope and potency fairly rapidly as these things go, scaling up to significant sanctions on everything Russia-related. This has had the net impact of largely isolating Russia from the global economy, and though they are still able to sell most of what they produce, they are a globally significant exporter of oil and coal and natural gas, after all. They are generally having to sell those products at a significant discount to China and India and other nations that have not joined in on the sanctions bonanza, which has been good for those importer nations as they are getting heavily discounted energy products, and this has allowed Russia to sustain itself, but it has also, at the same time, kept Russia from earning the immense profits they would have otherwise gleaned from these exports. These sanctions have also had the practical effect of severing Russia's relationships with much of the world, cutting it off from international economic utilities and systems that allow nations to engage in easy, frictionless trade with each other while also bumping it from some of its positions of influence within the international community. It's also caused international investment in Russia to more or less dry up 
and it's caused a huge number of international businesses to flee the country, selling off or basically giving away their in-country assets. It's also left Russia with substantially fewer options in terms of importing all sorts of technologies, including things that have become fundamental basics, like semiconductors. The sanctions are imperfect and were apparently accounted for to some degree. As I mentioned in the intro, analysts think those earlier efforts in 2014 allowed Putin to prepare for this, rearranging the Russian economy a bit, so that being cut off in this way would not hurt him as much, and bare minimum would hurt everyone else, especially the Russian energy-reliant European Union, as much or more, which would give Russia immense leverage over those who wanted to apply sanctions. And that leverage did serve to slow the deployment of some of the most potent of these economic weapons. But the transition away from Russian energy resources has also helped stoke a renewed interest in the EU and elsewhere in segueing away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy sources, as making that pivot became a security issue, not just an economic, environmental, and humanitarian one. So that attempt to use these resources as leverage to keep the EU out of the conflict might have backfired as Russia's economy is heavily reliant on fossil fuel exports and a global shift away from these resources is thus very bad for Russia's long-term health. Parallel to that Western realignment of priorities and investment, though, is another realignment that's being shaped a bit by Russia, but probably even more so by China. Russia and China have been strengthening their ties for years now, but this invasion, though it reportedly irked China because it disrupted the flow of their larger plans, and because Russia has performed so badly, so it's weakened one of their primary allies, but this invasion has given them serious incentive to build an alternative to the current global system, which is largely, not entirely, but largely controlled by the West, and the U.S. in particular, because of how the post-World War II was shaped and funded. A huge chunk of how things operate, from our global UN-based moderation system to the pipes and funnels used by global economic infrastructure, was built and funded by the United States. And this has been great for many nations in many ways. It makes it a million times easier for nations to deal with other nations in peaceful ways. But it also gives the U.S. and the West as a whole a bit of a whammy on everyone else because the benefits everyone enjoys are also largely controlled by those who built all of these things. So China and Russia, along with some of their global, somewhat outcasted allies like Iran, North Korea, and Pakistan, among others, have been doing their best to build alternative markets and systems using their own homegrown monetary tools their own currencies instead of USDs to engage in trade with each other, their own organizations and alliances, their own defense pacts, and other such investments and gestures, some of which might actually become new alternative standards, some of which probably won't, but all with the intention of cobbling together an alternative means of doing business with each other that gives less power to the West and allows them to do things how they want to do things, rather than relying on infrastructure that is at least partially beyond their control, which in turn can disallow them from building the type of world they want to build. 
Now, it's anyone's guess if this new system will evolve and grow and become a real-deal, long-lasting thing. There are many benefits to using the existing, larger, well-established international system, even though it is controlled by their ostensible enemies. So it could be that once this invasion is over or stabilizes into some kind of new normal, these efforts will disappear, or mostly disappear. It could also be that this invasion serves as a spark for the earnest and long-term build-out of a splinter system and the establishment of a more permanent, fractured, global economic and diplomatic apparatus, which would allow these entities to better dodge sanctions and other such economic weapons in the future, which could, among other things, prove beneficial to China if they decided to invade Taiwan at some point, while also being good for Iran if they wanted to decouple themselves from the systems that have allowed the U.S. to absolutely crush them with sanctions for years over their burgeoning nuclear program and their human rights record. Looping back around to the invasion itself, there are ongoing protests in Russia by those who do not believe this is a legitimate act and who want Putin to step down or to just stop doing what he's doing. But they are few and far between at this point, as folks who protested in the early days of the invasion were imprisoned and or basically kidnapped and sent to the front lines. Some data suggests that Russian citizens are increasingly in favor of the war as local propaganda, and there's not really any real actual journalism that's legally allowed to happen in Russia these days, so the government controls basically everything that is publicly said, short of a few bloggers who are pro-government but who have been frequently critical of individual military leaders who seem to be blundering their way through the invasion. But all that propaganda is maybe helping the government attain more support for the invasion, or bare minimum, it does seem to be helping convince people that it's not worth the consequences of speaking out against it. Internationally, most nations are against the invasion and have either leveled sanctions or spoken out harshly against it, though some, most prominently India, but also quite a few other nations, especially in the global south, have refused to take a firm side, generally saying they are in favor of peace, but often making statements that suggest they believe Ukraine or NATO might have been at least partially to blame for the invasion, which has allowed them to do business with both sides of this conflict, often quite profitably, though both sides also regularly apply pressure meant to nudge the fence-sitters over to their side of the debate. China has been trying its hand at a peacemaker role, recently releasing an overview of how they believe the invasion could be brought to an end, but the response to this proposal has been mostly negative, as China's tight bonds with Russia do not exactly make them an uninterested bystander, and the proposal is heavily slanted in favor of Putin's stated goals, including allowing Russia to keep the territory that they've already taken from Ukraine, which maybe is not surprising because of that alliance, and because the Chinese government has yet to talk to Ukrainian leaders, which is typically something you would do if you were serious about making peace rather than just being perceived as a peacemaker. The general analysis of what seems to have happened invasion-wise is currently that Putin made a big miscalculation, likely based on bad advice from yes-men that he had surrounded himself with, thinking that he would be able to swoop in, take Kyiv in a day or two, decapitate the Ukrainian government, and then put a Russian puppet government in place there 
supporting them with covert Russian military assistance, and basically claiming the area as a new buffer zone against NATO and Europe more broadly, as tends to be their favorite way of doing things. Such a move, if successful, probably would have resulted in the outcome he wanted, as Russia has done this sort of thing before, even in recent memory, and the rest of the world did not budge, mostly just saying, hey, that's not okay, but then letting it happen and going on with their lives. There's a big difference between supporting a successful defensive force and sending your own soldiers into a country to fight directly with Russian-controlled forces. And what we're seeing today is the former, but what we might have seen had Putin been successful would have been the latter, and that is a lot less palatable for all sorts of reasons. That plan did not work, though, and a seemingly rushed sequence of ham-fisted decisions in the years since then, which have resulted in the loss of a huge number of soldiers and military commanders and the firing of a surprisingly large number of Russian generals, not to mention a serious reliance on the Wagner mercenary force, which are not officially connected to the Russian government, but which are definitely connected to the Russian government, and whose leadership has been increasingly critical of other aspects of the Russian military in recent months, all of those flubbed decisions have compounded Russia's issues in Ukraine, locking them into what could become something like a Vietnam war for them, a slow, unpopular grind that diminishes them and their forces and their economy in perception and practicality, locally and on the global stage. It also seems to be reinforcing Western alliances rather than breaking them apart, which is reportedly the opposite of what was intended and expected here. It's suspected, and this is by many of the same analysts and experts that have gotten so many other things wrong about this conflict so far, so please take this with a grain of salt, but it is expected that the next six months or so will be defined by grinding attritional advances, periodic rushes forward, and a relatively near-future Russian advance countered in the spring by a Ukrainian advance. That is based on what seems to be happening on the ground and the chatter that's been made public. So there's a non-zero chance one side or the other will do something tricky and manage a bigger advance, which could lead to more territory changing hands faster. There's also a chance that Ukraine could strike more into Russian territory, which is something a lot of their allies are worried about, as that could expand the range of the conflict and even cause Putin to worry and start using tactical nukes, which would open a whole new can of very worrying worms. But if things continue as they are, with slow advantages accumulating on both sides, for Ukraine, because of new weapons and training provided by their allies, and for Russia, as it gets its feet back under it, and as it moves on from those rushed, frantic, bad plans into something more strategic and a more whole-of-the-economy war footing. If all of that moves apace, we could see a sort of forever war emerging in the area, with the front lines not moving as much as they have been, a lot of resources and lives being thrown into the conflict blender, and slow, steady negotiations on the outside, almost certainly being forwarded by China, which is very interested in ending this conflict, though ideally on terms that are favorable for their ally, Russia, and possibly by Western nations like France as well, whose leaders have consistently shown themselves to be willing to defy the NATO party line 
to discuss potential terms with Russian leaders. In the longer term, whatever happens on the ground, it is likely Russia will remain isolated for some time, and it is expected that their economy will suffer greatly over the next decade or two because of the compounding impacts of these sanctions, which have and will continue to weaken all sorts of local industries and their capacity to manufacture or develop anything advanced and requiring of modern technologies to function. And that is alongside the even more fundamental brain drain that seems to be occurring as their young people, who don't want to be drafted to fight in an invasion they don't believe in, flee to Europe, flee to Georgia, flee to other countries where they can live their lives and do their work in peace, while also continuing to do business with the international community. A lot of companies and entrepreneurs and students have fled Russia in the past year, and that exodus is expected to continue apace, making the country's business outlook and their human talent and capacity outlook, in terms of having enough young people to continue growing and to keep the economy ticking along, not great, and potentially even abysmal. There's also a good chance this conflict will shape the next major military conflict over Taiwan or wherever else, as we're learning a lot about what modern warfare, post-1990s, post-war on terror, looks like. Drone swarms in particular, of the in-air, on-the-ground, and in-the-water variety, seem to be super useful in countering the previous state-of-the-art weaponry and tactics. And global militaries are investing heavily in the capacity to churn out cheap, abundant drones that work together as a unit, allowing them to take out heavy and expensive hardware like aircraft carriers, but also kill individual infantry easily and effectively, while also countering missiles, jets, and other contemporary battlefield fundamentals. It's broadly expected that the aforementioned splintering of the international order will continue apace, and Russia may try, in the near future, to bring more nations and chunks of nations into its fold before those lines can be drawn with a thicker marker. That includes reported plans to pull Belarus into a sort of union, which could happen, as the leader of Belarus is pro-Russia, though we don't know if he would agree to have his country made into a client state of Putin's Russia. So we'll see on that. But there's also whispering that Moldova, which is on the other side of Ukraine from Russia, might be a target in the near future, as there's a breakaway province there that supports and has the support of Russia, and which contains the biggest ammo depot in Europe. The idea being that Russia could try to do there what they did in eastern Ukraine, supporting the breakaway province to create another Russian or Russia-aligned stronghold, which would make things more complicated for Ukraine, but also Europe more broadly. More pieces on the board, basically, as sides are chosen and the world becomes polarized because the West, led by the US and EU, and the new axis, as some entities are calling them, led by China and Russia, are both trying to win things for their side before the sides can be more cleanly defined. Negotiations to reach some kind of ending for this invasion will be tricky, as both sides have seemingly oppositional goals. Russia wants to pull Ukraine into its orbit, but would possibly settle for, and be able to justify, without embarrassment, keeping the eastern portion of the country and Crimea, while then stepping back and maybe rearming and restocking for a future invasion. 
But Ukraine has said that Russia must leave all those areas, and there can be no peace until they do. And the international community, largely at least, has supported that assertion, as anything less would seem to incentivize the invasion of one country by another, because the invading party would know they could just keep whatever they're able to grab, even after negotiations are completed. In terms of when this conflict might end, the on-the-ground fighting component of it, at least, and the part in Ukraine, at least, as there's a chance this conflict between these two currently somewhat focused sides could expand into other regions and other conflicts, analysts differ in their assessment about when it might end. But most seem to think, unless something significant changes in the dynamic between China and Russia, if the former steps away and stops backing Russia, for instance, giving them less support, Russia would probably be more likely to pull back on their own. And unless something happens to change the leadership in Russia, which isn't impossible, Russian leaders die by being pushed out of windows all the time, but it also isn't considered terribly likely at the moment. Unless something fundamental like that changes, though, it's expected this conflict will roll on for another few years, minimum. There is a chance, though, that it becomes something like what we've seen in Syria, basically a war of attrition that lasts more than a decade, which would be very not ideal for everyone involved. But Russia has shown itself to be stubborn on these sorts of things in the past, including in Syria, where it is a significant player. So that pretty terrible and long-lasting outcome is certainly not impossible either. The book I'd like to recommend today is very relevant to the topic. It's called The Story of Russia by Orlando Figgis. This is exactly what it sounds like it is. It's a history of Russia and the Russian area and the Russian empire and empires and groups, different ruling classes that have come along and ruled over what is today Russia and the surrounding territory. And it's basically just a really good backgrounder on why the Russia of today is how it is and how much of what it is today can be put in historical context in various ways, but also how the area has changed over time. And it has changed dramatically, even as some things have remained fairly fundamental, including that it has typically been a giant expansive area, even as the rulers and cultures and everything else have changed. That broadness and expansiveness has generally remained the same. Now, if you're keen to learn more about the Russia of today and what's happening in that part of the world, or if you're just keen to read a good history book that tells the story of the characters involved and the historical events that have shaped this area, consider picking up a copy of The Story of Russia by Orlando Figgis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a couple of my other news-related projects at onesentencenews.com and notesonthenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.